scripture reading today is from Exodus, chapters 1 and 2. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. God, meet us now in this ancient story. Uh, let it speak to the times that we live in even today, and let it show us the way of life. Let it comfort us and also show us the way of love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again, City Church. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jonathan Gunlock, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's really a joy to be with you this morning, um, actually from a friend's home, if you notice the change in background. Um, some friends of ours in San Anselmo had us up to their house um, to let our kids enjoy their pool, which is a big plus. 
for them, uh, also for me. Um, so we're up here this weekend and um, also saw that it's very sunny in the city on the chat. So glad that we can all be enjoying some nice weather and some relatively clean air this Sunday morning. Well, I'm really glad to be uh, leading this conversation on the next installment, the second installment of our series, When Things Fall Apart. And today we get to dive into one of the most interesting stories in the whole Bible. And it's a really well-known story, really, about the birth of Moses. And on the one hand, this is a story about a time when the early nation of Israel was almost wiped out, almost annihilated. But it's also a story of how when things were completely collapsing all around them, God was at work overcoming abusive power through very creative and surprising means. This is a part of Israel's formation story, along with the stories from Genesis, like the creation accounts and the story of Noah's flood and the early ancestral stories like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and all that. This is written for the purpose of helping Israel understand where they came from and what their purpose is in the world and what to expect of themselves, what to expect of the world and what to expect of God. So there are a lot of symbols and little clues under the surface in this story. We'll, we'll try to unpack some of those as we move along today. But this is also very much a story of things falling apart and then coming back together again. One of many such stories in the Bible. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that the entirety of Scripture is a story of things falling apart, coming back together again, falling apart again, coming back together again. And it's actually in that process, that very dynamic process, that the work of God is clearly revealed and new life and new things break into the open. And it can feel counterintuitive and it can feel disturbing because we have a natural aversion to change and to deconstruction. But a quote I've been pondering a lot the last many weeks by Carl Jung, it's a very short one, where he says, nothing can be created without destruction. Nothing can be created without destruction. And it sounds harsh, but you know, Jesus, Jesus said some very similar things. And being Jesus said it much better than even Carl Jung. For instance, in John 12, Jesus says, and this is a paraphrase from uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message. Jesus says, listen carefully, unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Jesus says, listen carefully. And in the Greek, it's, it's like he says, I tell you this solemn truth. This is hard to comprehend. So listen, new life and new growth only happens by letting some things fall apart and not holding on too tightly to your life as you know it. If you can learn this pattern and be reckless in your love, and I love that part, reckless in your love, you'll find life forever. And I do love that because we need it. We need it, especially these last six months, because they've reminded us in ways we would have never chosen that things do fall apart. And it always catches you to some degree off guard and by surprise. And when you're in the middle of it, 
it's deeply unnerving. But that's exactly when we need to be on the lookout for new life, for new possibilities breaking in all around us. And stories like the one today that we're looking at can encourage us and show us how to live a little bit more like that. So we'll look at this story through the lens of its chief characters. Uh, first up is a very fearful, fearful pharaoh, fearful king, a guy with a lot of power trapped in a vortex of destruction. And then we'll see the wise midwives who might be the most interesting and fun part of the story. We'll then meet and look at the profound faith of Moses' mother and his sister, and then the awesomely reckless love of Pharaoh's very own daughter. So first up, Pharaoh. You know, our text says uh, he was a new king. It says he didn't know Joseph, which harkens back to the previous story. And just the super quick review version is basically the Israelites had ended up in Egypt through a miracle, really, and they had escaped a famine in their homeland, ended up in Egypt because of the leadership of one of their patriarchs named Joseph. And this had happened a few hundred years earlier, and they had been invited into Egypt, into the Nile Delta region, a very lush region, to rest and be nourished in this very fruitful land. And they had experienced that blessing for quite a long time at this point, hundreds of years. And then one day, it all started to fall apart. We see it in verse 9. Pharaoh says, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You know, it's interesting. This Pharaoh is probably the most powerful guy in the world, and he's afraid because a migrant tribe was growing too fast. And their growth was supposed to be understood as a sign of God's blessing. I mean, it was a sign that God's encouragement in the Genesis creation accounts that people be fruitful and multiply, that it was now really coming true. But Pharaoh can only see it through a lens of fear and control. He says that there's just too many of them and they're not like us. They might overpower us or leave us. We need to control them. We need to exploit their labor. It's a toxic and oppressive use of power. And also, incidentally, it's a very fearful and it's a very masculine approach to control. And we're going to see that contrasted some today. So at first, he tries to work the Israelite men to the bone to build massive store cities, which paradoxically are supposed to preserve life. They're supposed to preserve food and supplies. But he's using those same store cities to drive the life out of the Hebrew males. But it doesn't work. See in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Israelites multiplied and spread. And we can see that Genesis creation language keeps showing back up. So the initial plan, Pharaoh's initial plan for oppression fails and instead of reconsidering his approach or maybe backing off a little bit, Pharaoh doubles down. His ethnic cleansing campaign moves from one of manipulation and exploitation to direct violence. And you can see here the beginning of Pharaoh's own unraveling because this is the nature of oppression. It not only dehumanizes the oppressed, those who are held down, 
it also dehumanizes the oppressor. And Pharaoh here is on the early stages of his long downward spiral in a vortex of fear and violence that eventually cost him everything. But at this point in the story, for the people of Israel, it's an absolute crisis. The entire power structure of Egypt, which for hundreds of years had been a womb of protection and growth, suddenly it's become a tomb that threatens to engulf them all. On a meta scale, if Pharaoh has his way, a few short generations, Israel, the Hebrews, will be wiped out. But on a personal level, every Hebrew mother, father, sister, brother are forced to live in constant fear as women become pregnant and wait for their children to be born. This time that should be the most joyous of occasions is racked with fear and dread. Just when you should be celebrating new life, you're afraid your child will be brutally murdered if it's a boy. But the interesting twist to this story is that while all of Pharaoh's attention and power is focused on smothering out the male population, it's actually a series of wise, courageous, and creative women who thwart his plans for destruction. I mean, this is a story where all the heroes are courageous women. It's really cool. And the, the scholar, Terry Frething, uh, he comments, in the refusal of women to cooperate with oppression, the liberation of Israel from Egyptian bondage has its beginnings. Bucking a male-dominated system, they risk their lives for the sake of life. As a result, they not only contribute to the prospering of the children of Israel, but enable this particular child, Moses, destined to become Israel's leader, to emerge with the best possible preparation for his task. What the women do for Moses, God will do for all Israel. Daughters are the saviors of sons. Really cool. This is a story exclusively about heroic women. And speaking of heroic women, I know this Sunday um, we are mourning the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Our nation is, and I know this is weighing heavily on many of our minds this morning, this particular Sunday. You know, in a year when so many things have fallen apart and our nation is struggling through such a tumultuous time, struggling really to find its soul, it's quite a blow quite a blow to lose such a wise public servant, such an advocate for women and civil rights, especially right now. You know, the respect the notorious RGB, RBG, sorry, holds across the political aisle is, is just profound. I mean, the fact that she maintained a close personal relationship with Justice Scalia during his lifetime, I mean, somebody who could not have been more opposite in judicial approach, but the fact that they were able to maintain such a close relationship is a testament to the kind of person that she was and the kind of leadership that she really stood for. Fight for things you care about. Fight for things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. You know, I lost my own grandmother this year. She was uh, about the same age as Justice Ginsburg. And it's weighed a lot on me this year. And in many ways, I feel like we're now mourning our um, nation's unofficial grandmother 
this weekend. You know, the one who was just keeping an eye on everything. But it also seems really appropriate that today, of all Sundays, we'd be discussing a story full of women heroes. And the first of those heroes that come on the scene, the first women liberators, are the midwives. And in some ways, they're the lead heroes of the story. In fact, except for Moses, they're the only people in the story who are actually named. Sifra and Pua. Not even the most powerful pharaoh, the most powerful king is named. Now, this is intentional. It's intentional on the part of the author. The author wants us to pay very close attention to these two women because they were true national heroes of the Hebrew people. Every ancient Hebrew would have known Sifra and Pua by name. The scholar Carol Myers comments, Moses may be the major Israelite figure in the book of Exodus, but the first individual Israelites mentioned in the narrative are the two women, Sifra and Pua. Two women, members of an outcast group, are conferred the dignity of names in contrast to the namelessness of the powerful king. And this lost, powerful, and nameless king, this pharaoh, tries to pass his dirty work off to them. He says, you know, when you go assist in those childbirths, just make sure that the male babies die. Now, there's, there's even some thought here that he might have been trying to do this a little bit under the radar. Like maybe, maybe the Hebrew mothers wouldn't really know why their male children kept dying in childbirth. So it's like disgustingly cowardly on Pharaoh's part. And Sifra and Pua, they could, have, they could have complied and they could have played along. And maybe that would have been less risky to them. But instead, the story tells us they feared, or the way we would understand it, they revered God and they outwit Pharaoh. And it's actually a little comical, the way the story is told. Verse 17, but the midwives feared or revered God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And allowed the boys to live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. You know, I've recently learned something interesting about ancient midwives. It's pretty cool. Uh, they weren't only necessary and essential workers of the highest order, and they were, because, you know, people got to have babies and that ain't easy. And I know that um, as a completely useless man who watched my wife give birth to three kids. But midwives were also considered to be unusually wise. They were, they were like female sages. Now, this is an era before medicine becomes dominated by men. But what we, what we call midwives were literally called wise women in many cultures, even in some Jewish scriptures. And we can trace that even into some of our modern language today. For instance, in French, a midwife is a sage femme, a female sage. And even in English, we can see it in a bit in our own words, at least you go back into the old English, because a midwife comes from an older English word, widwife, and you can think like wit, witwife, or a woman of wit. 
So that's exactly what they do. These wise women, these sages, these women of wit actually outwit Pharaoh in all his power by telling him the preposterous tale that women, Hebrew women, aren't like the Egyptian women. Now there's a little dig there that they don't need midwives. They are powerful and vigorous and just send the babies right out before the midwives can even arrive on the scene. Now, it's completely ridiculous on its face. But you know, I believe, or at least I'd, I'd like to believe, that Sifra and Pua had already accurately sized up this pharaoh in all his manliness and fear and complete lack of any knowledge of like women or babies or biology. <laughs> and they, they knew this might work. I mean, is it really? Is it really that different than what we see sometimes passes for science today? Even now, even in America, even in the highest levels of our government during a pandemic. I mean, just imagine Sifra and Pua making their calculated and ridiculous assertions. While Pharaoh buys it, and while Pharaoh's assistants and medical experts stand around looking at each other in utter disbelief, hanging their heads and trying not to make eye contact. I mean, all you got to do is watch like 10 minutes of the news today to see that this isn't so far from reality. But Pharaoh buys it. And he's like, I guess Hebrew women just aren't like Egyptian women. They don't need midwives. It's, it's the darnest thing. So, I mean, it's a bit comical. And it, and it is successful in the story. But it also causes the violence to intensify. Pharaoh sends a direct order to all Egyptians. All the male infants must now be thrown into the Nile River. This river, known for giving life and nurturing Egyptians and Hebrews together for many years, would now become an instrument of death for the Israelites. And this story shifts to Moses' mother. His mother, who later, in later accounts, we find out her name is Yaakoved. And I might refer to her by name a few times today. Yaakoved and her husband are members of the priestly tribe of Israel. They're Levites. And they have a baby boy who, in our translation, is described as a fine baby. And maybe, maybe you caught that, and maybe it's a little confusing, but in the Hebrew, it's actually another clue pointing back to Genesis again, that God's doing something here. Because it would read in the Hebrew more like when she looked on it, when she saw it, the baby, she saw that it was good. And that's just like God each day of the creation account, creating the world, looking upon it and saying it was good. So it's a little clue that something might be about to happen, that the creative work of God might be about to break into this dire situation. So Yaakov Moses' mother, hides the child for three months. But then eventually she faces an agonizing choice. There's just no way to hide this child forever. And as soon as he's discovered, one of Pharaoh's loyalists will surely kill him. So she devises the best plan she could, carefully builds a special, durable, waterproof basket, and then sets her baby boy down into the Nile River. Now, I want to stay on that for just a minute. Because we need to imagine the absolute powerlessness a mother would have to feel in order to place her baby in a river, to stake 
all her hope on some faint possibility that someone downstream might find him and in compassion might decide to take care of him. Now there's some indications that this may have been an expected practice in a really dire situation. The ancient cultures often had kind of an unofficial way where parents who were unable to care for their children could leave them in designated places to be adopted. And usually they would be adopted if it happened by someone from the dominant wealthier culture of the land. And the Egyptians in particular, they did take some pride in raising foreign children as good, noble Egyptians. So Yaakov's best hope in this moment is that a benevolent person with enough power and enough courage to defy Pharaoh would find her child and save it from death. But I mean, this is something that could also go terribly wrong. In her complete powerlessness and agony, she is clinging. I mean, she's clinging to hope and grace. And that is the very nature of faith. Michael Gerson is a former presidential speechwriter and a commentator today. And he has a quote that I discovered maybe a year ago, and I think it was on his reflection, his personal reflection battling de- depression, where he says, faith, faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt. Faith consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace. Faith consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace. Yaakovet, Moses' mother, with his sister there at her side, is staking her child's life on the rumor of grace, on the mere possibility that this river of life that had been corrupted into a river of death could still deliver her son to a new life, that there could still be goodness and compassion in this land of oppression. And you know, having a child at risk is probably the scariest thing a parent can experience. But I think this scene of Yaakov laying down her dream, laying down her baby into the water is about the most brutal and yet relatable scene of the personal and heartfelt surrender that is often necessary in us when the world around us begins to fall apart. I mean, there are always points along life's journey where the only option we have is to stake our life, to stake our most important decisions, our our greatest loves on a rumor of grace and to lay our dreams down into the waters, not knowing where God will take them. Trusting only in God's character and creative power and hoping that our dreams may somehow be preserved or transformed or maybe given back to us again in some way. And I'm wondering if this resonates with you. I mean, are there things in your life, maybe even in the last six months, that you've had to give up, that you've had to turn over to God, not knowing whether you'll get them back or in what form? I mean, if you place yourself on the edge of that river with Yaakov, what are, what are you placing into that basket? What are you putting into that basket and praying that God will preserve and protect or heal 
or give back to you again in some way, someday. What does staking your life on the rumor of grace mean for you right now? But here's the thing. The lesson of this formative story for Israel is that God's very nature is to lead people through, through, and not just around, but through the waters of death. In fact, the basket, the basket that Moses' mother builds in Hebrew is literally called an ark. It's like a little ark, little baby ark. And this is yet another allusion back to the stories of Genesis, that this basket is an ark for the baby Moses to carry that baby through the waters of death and into new life so that that baby could one day lead the people of Israel out of slavery, through the waters, and into new life. And this basket, this ark, carries Moses into the view of Pharaoh's very own daughter. Now, I'm sure she did not wake up that morning with any idea of what she'd be confronted with when she went down to the river. But then this remarkable encounter occurs. It says, she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. So she's the first one to notice the basket, this ark in the reed. She's aware enough, present enough to see it first. And when she opens it, she sees the baby crying. And in the Hebrew, it's actually a very intense scene. It doesn't just describe a baby crying in the normal way. It uses some kind of weird, very adult language for weeping. It's very intense. It's actually the only time that this very adult word is ever used to apply to a child crying. It's almost as if the baby Moses knows in those tears, in that crying, knows the seriousness of this moment for himself as a threatened infant, as a symbol for the threat that was over all the Israelites. But there is a serious like spiritual confrontation simultaneously occurring in that moment. Pharaoh's daughter has to very quickly decide whether she'll comply with her father's command. And for her, that is not only a family relationship and a political relationship, it's also, it also poses the most serious spiritual questions because Pharaoh was a representative of the Egyptian gods and had given his express command that the male infants be drowned. And now this daughter, his daughter, a member of his bloodline, is holding a Hebrew male infant in her very arms and has a decision to make. Loyalty to her father, loyalty to her Egyptian gods, or reckless love for this infant. And she doesn't have any time to calculate. She has to make this decision in an instant. But there's also something spectacular and beautiful about this powerful woman that she has the incredible presence of mind to see and feel what needs to be done in that moment, in the sacrament of that present moment, in the words of Evelyn Underhill. The way Evelyn describes things like that, she says, many people, feel unaware of any guidance, unable to discern or understand the signals of God, not because the signals are not given, but because the mind is too troubled, clouded, and hurried to receive them. God is always coming to you 
in the sacrament of the present moment. Meet and receive him there with gratitude in that sacrament. Pharaoh's daughter sees the child weeping and she is filled with compassion to save him. Our translation today uses the word pity, but it's not really just that, it's deeper than that. It's compassion um, and desire to save this, this baby. Pharaoh's daughter has the courage and the presence of mind to read the signals God is sending in the sacrament of that moment, including the signal of Moses' sister coming along and courageously and boldly coming up with a plan to help salvage the situation. And honestly, Miriam, later on we find out that's her name, Moses' sister, she deserves an entire sermon just for her role in this situation. But we don't have time for that today. But from Pharaoh's daughter, it's a politically reckless decision. I mean, it alters her family's history forever. But her heart seems to be attuned, deeply attuned, to the same type of words of Jesus we heard earlier in the sermon. In the same way, anyone who holds on to their life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. So she lets go of her life as she knows it. She lets go of her loyalty to her father and his oppressive power. She deploys her power in the direction of reckless, compassionate love. And in doing so, she turns that river of death back into a river of life. And as the story goes, she eventually adopts Moses as her legal son and heir. And there's even some indication in the Hebrew scriptures that eventually she leaves her royal family and joins herself to the Israelites as a, as a nation. It's really amazing. And as you know, as we navigate a very challenging and tumultuous time in the life of the world and the life of our country, I'm sure you can identify, I'm sure you can identify with different people in this story. But honestly, some of the time I feel a little too much like, like Pharaoh at times in my fear, in my desire to maintain stability, sometimes at all costs. Sometimes, occasionally I feel a little bit like those midwives, at least in the desire to be wise and sometimes take risks to help. And I do know, I'm sure many of you do too, I do know what it's like to lay some pretty life-altering dreams into the water and to trust on nothing but the rumor of grace. And I'm sure you can feel a bit of all those movements from this story in your life as well. But in the end, it's Pharaoh's daughter, who doesn't hold all the power, but holds a lot, who decides at great risk not to be complicit in the oppression of her father. She's willing to let go of normal life as she knows it, she is reckless in her love, and she alters the course of history. So my prayer for us, City Church, especially right now in these times, especially maybe even this week ahead, is that we would follow her example, to hold our life, to hold our security loosely, and to be reckless in love. Let's go out this week with that in mind. Let's pray. God, go with us this week out into a tumultuous and even frightening world. Give us the wisdom and courage of the midwives. Give us the faith of Yaakovet and the reckless love of Pharaoh's daughter. Show us how to stake our lives on the rumor of grace 
and then let that grace show up in some amazing and surprising ways in our life. Amen.